Body there would not reach. 
Amen. Hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Amen. Amen. What a amen. Yes, what a great day to be in the house of the Lord. While you're standing, take a moment and welcome those around you. Be seated. All right. Well, welcome to Northside. We are glad that you are here. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, half of the church, I think, is gone. It's fall break, and some, some people have said our church tends to leave when there's a break. So uh, thank you for being here. We're going to have a great time of worship and uh, of praising the Lord. If this is your first time, welcome uh, we're glad that you are here to worship with us. If this is your first time, we'd appreciate it if you would let us know. A couple different ways you can do that. You can scan the QR code in the bulletin, or there's a connection card um, out there in uh, the foyer. I want to take a moment, and um, you may have to spread the word to your friends and neighbors who aren't here, but I want to take a moment to kind of share with you uh, a change that you'll see in our order of service starting next week. Um, so I like to be transparent. I'd like you to know what's getting ready to happen. Uh, several years ago during COVID, right, churches were trying to figure some things out, to work through some things. So some things that were a normal part of our worship service ceased to be part of the worship service, chiefly the taking up of tithes and offerings. Um, we began to put a box out there. Uh, it was working well. To be honest, that's not something I really thought about very much. But this was a conversation that came up a couple months ago in our deacons meeting about resuming the collection of tithes and offerings. So I want to share what that's going to look like going forward. Please hold your applause if you're in favor of it or your boos if you are against it. Just don't respond because this is just from my heart to yours. So just three things uh, quickly. Presently, we do not mention anything about giving during the worship service, and I take full responsibility for that. Um, our giving has been great. 
It has not uh, struggled at all in the last three and a half years. And to be honest, my mind is focused on preaching. It just slips my mind the majority of Sundays to even mention how you can give and the importance of that. So that what that means is there's no corporate time of recognizing God's gracious gifts to us. There's no corporate time of prayer and thanksgiving for those gifts. There's no reminder on a weekly basis that we're responsible to God for everything. That includes uh, our finances, that we are to be good stewards. So we don't take any time during the worship service to collectively praise God for that. So that's number one. Number two, there have been a couple instances lately where a visitor has come and wanted to give, but because nothing was said about giving, again, no corporate time of giving, no mention of the box, they didn't know how to give. And so they would come to me or they would ask and they just didn't know how to give. And so you will still be able to give online. You can still put your tithe or your offering in the box. Uh, but just hear my heart. We aren't resuming the offering in the worship service just to do it because we've always done it that way. Rather, I desire that it be worshipful. Giving is an act of worship. And I also recognize that your giving is about the glory of God and not the recognition of an individual. So we're not pressuring you to give when we pass the plate. We won't pass the plate four times. We recognize ultimately that is between you and the Lord. If you feel it's more worshipful to give in the box or to give online, then you continue to do that. But we do want to provide an opportunity for those who prefer to give in that method for they find it worshipful to do that. And third, by resuming the time of offering in the worship service, we will have an opportunity to encourage and allow our students and some who maybe aren't serving to do that. Prior, When I came prior to COVID, one thing I loved about the way we took up the offering is we would often have students, and those students would even sometimes come up and pray. And it was encouraging to see them learning how to serve and what that looks like. So starting next Sunday... We are going to resume a corporate time of offering together, and it will look just like it looked prior to COVID. After the hymn, our, our ushers will come forward, our deacon of the week will pray during that time, and we will take up the offering while the choir is singing just like we used to do it. And so if you, again, want to give another way, we understand that, but we do want to, going forward, make sure we have a time in our service where we are just taking time to thank God uh, for his good gifts um, and doing that in a worshipful way. And it is clear I will not remember week to week to tell you how you can give otherwise. And so we'll continue to have that issue in um, that struggle. Again, everything that we desire to do when we're in here is to be worshipful. It is to recognize the glory of God and the goodness of God. It's why the scriptures are at the center of all that we do in our time of Worship, And part of that is we want to give opportunities for people who have been changed by the saving grace of Jesus Christ to come before you and to give their testimony, giving God all the glory for their We've uh, been at this church for about eight years now, and uh, we have two adult daughters that don't come here. They live in different places, and our son, Sean, who's, who most of you know, uh, most time when you have a testimony, it's always one person up here, but Debbie and I met when I was 15 years old. So our testimonies are kind of intertwined, so we're both up here together to share them because they're, they're tied together. For me, I, I've known God my whole life. There was never a time where I doubted God's existence. I was raised in a Catholic church. I went to church every Sunday because I was supposed to. and. Uh, 
but I still felt the obligation to go. And I always knew from a child, like I said, that God always existed. Even when I left for college, although I didn't uh, live a very godly life, I still went to church at the college, Catholic church, just about every Sunday. Overall, I thought I was a pretty good person. I certainly wasn't a bad enough person to deserve going to hell. Uh, I knew I was okay. Debbie and I dated throughout high school and in college, and during college we got engaged and planned to be married after college. And uh, I had to engage her there because I didn't want her to figure out that she could have done way better. And so, but, uh, so we got engaged. And I wanted her to become a Catholic, and she'll talk more about it. She wasn't at the time. I wanted her to become a Catholic so when we were married, we could be married in the church and also go to church together. And uh, so she converted, and we got married, and we went to church most Sundays. Uh, Debbie was always, always a, a very good person, always a godly woman, even though she didn't know it. Uh, I, however, went to church on Sundays and then just lived however I felt like the rest of the week. So I remember there were times in my 20s where I tried to be really good. I'd get my Bible out and I'd read it. Never read through much of it, but I would stick with it for a few weeks and none of it really meant much to me. The Catholic Church didn't really encourage or discourage, but they didn't encourage reading your Bible. So I knew very little in my 20s of what was even in the Bible. Uh, I don't recall it impacting me much in my 20s, but when I was in my young 30s, about 31 years old, I was in, in the Air Force and I was in a flying squadron and I was in an office with some other flight uh, commanders and I was one of them. And I used to watch a godly man in my office and uh, he lived a godly life and you could tell there was something about him. Uh, you know, he was always content, I was not. He was always joyful, I was not. And like the stories you've heard so many times is, is the truth. I would look at him and think, what does he have that I'm missing? And uh, he lived his faith. He wasn't ashamed of it at all. And everybody liked him. Uh, even though he was a Christian, nobody really hung out with him, but everybody liked him because he was such a nice guy. One Sunday, when Debbie and I were going to the Catholic Church, uh, a visiting priest was there. And for some reason, that visiting priest decided to clean out an attic. And in that attic, he found a box of Gideon New Testaments. And he, at the end of church, said, if any of you want one of these New Testaments, take one on your way out. And you gotta remember at this point, I've very rarely read anything in the Bible. But I had part of my job once a week, I'd sit in a truck for eight hours and I would just watch airplanes land and record them. And I'd talk to the general and tell them everybody was down safe very boring. So I thought I would take this New Testament and I would sit in that truck once a week and I would read it. So as I'm reading it, I'm learning things that I didn't know before. And eventually, I can't remember if it was in the truck or somewhere else, but, and I don't recommend this, I made a deal with God saying, God, I will read, I just had the New Testament, but I will read your whole Bible if you'll help me figure out what it is that this guy has that I don't have. So, uh, I read, and I got a Bible, and I read it cover to cover, just like I had made the deal. And uh, I learned more than I had learned in 31 years uh, in church, just from reading it. Uh, 
And so I went back to work one day after reading through. I'd read it through for a year. I think the deal was, God, I'll read it in a year if you make it clear to me. And about a year later, after watching my friend Jeff, the good Christian man in my office, I, I asked him to go to lunch because I had a lot of questions. And this is like our Christian's dream, isn't it? Somebody coming to us. So I went to him. I didn't tell him what it was for, but I went to lunch and we sat at lunch. I said, look, I've been reading the Bible. There's a lot of things I really don't understand here. And of course he invited me to go to his church. And we started meeting once a week and pray, or talking in one of the uh, church offices and it was a Baptist church. And I can't tell you exactly the day. I just know one day uh, we got down and prayed and I didn't know exactly what was happening. I just knew something was different. For the first time in my life, I wanted to follow God and do what uh, he expected of me. Um, but now that I had surrendered to God and I understood at that point that I needed a savior, I think that was the big part. I never realized I needed one. I always thought I was pretty good. But now that I was saved, it was time to work on Debbie because she was a good person. And I'll let her take over from here. Oh, uh, you want to just talk about the conversation? Yes. Okay, go ahead. So, so which conversation? The big conversation. Yes, okay. So I'd known God all my life, and I would say I was close to God all my life. As a child, I knew he was there. As a young, struggling teenager, I would walk to the woods and sit on a log, and I would just pour my heart out to him. He was always there for me. My grandparents were strong Christians, but my parents were not. We went to whatever church had the best choir because my father loved to sing. Um, and so we were attending an Episcopal church when my parents separated, and so I ended up just staying there uh, with my mom for several years. So I would say I mostly grew up in the Episcopal church. Uh, so as Bill told you, we met in high school, we were engaged in college, and I remember Bill and I talking about it was very, very important that we go to church together. If we're gonna make a life together, we need to be in church together. And so I, began to attend the Catholic Church with him, and I converted to Catholicism. We were eventually married in the church, and um, I continued to believe in God, and I prayed to him regularly, and uh, we attended church faithfully as a married couple. Our daughters were baptized as babies. But when Bill had that experience, I was so happy for him. Bill knew God like I knew God. But it became very quickly apparent to me that there was something else that Bill experienced that I didn't understand. Um, but we did start to attend a Baptist church, and all I can tell you is it felt like coming home, like I was supposed to be there. It was just a totally different experience at that church. However, I was still completely lost. So one evening in particular, Bill began to share with me about Jesus Christ. And see, I knew who God was, he was my best friend, but I did not know who Jesus really was. I knew in here who he was, but I can't tell you what Bill said that evening, but all I remember is Jesus, 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 just kept playing over and over. And finally I told him, okay, that's enough. I need to go to bed, I'm tired. And so I went to bed and I kept waking up all night long. And every time I woke up, Jesus, 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 just played over and over in my mind. Sure. I forgot to mention uh -huh. when we had this conversation, 
she was tired of hearing me talk. She went to bed, and I got down and prayed, and I kind of got lost in prayer, which is, you know, it doesn't happen all the time. I couldn't tell you how long I was praying, but I was just praying for her to understand what I was trying to explain to her. So the next morning I wake up a little cranky, but um, I put on my jogging clothes and I decide I'm gonna go out for a run like I did most mornings. And when I got to the end of my street, which wasn't very far from my house, I just realized I gossip, I'm a sinner. See, up to this point, I thought I'm a good person. I don't drink, I try to be kind, I tried to do the right things. And I thought that was good enough that God loved me because I was a good person. But at that moment, I realized I'm not a good person, that I sin. And so as I continued to jog, and I'm wrestling this with this in my mind, a few minutes later, on the actual jogging trail, an image of Jesus on the cross came to my mind, and then an image of Jesus on the throne. And this overwhelming feeling like I need to be face down on the ground. And I'm ashamed to say I did not do it because I did not understand what that feeling was and what it meant. And, but I knew at that moment, I knew without a doubt that Christ gave his life for me, Debbie Morris, and he died for my sins. So saying that now seems really simple to say, but I didn't understand any of the theology behind it at that time. I didn't really even know that Christ needed, to, I needed to understand that Christ died for my sins. But as I continued to run, I was just flooded with such joy, and um, God brought all these memories to my mind of people that had planted seeds in my life, um, especially my grandmother. Uh, I can always remember her singing Amazing Grace around the house, and I, didn't, I knew it was a hymn, but I didn't really understand what it meant. It meant nothing to me, really. But anyway, when I got home, I woke up Bill, and I shared with him, and we were just really happy that we had both had this wonderful experience. And later that day, Bill said to me, why don't you open the Bible, try, try reading the Bible? And so when I began to read, that hymn became so alive to me. I was blind, but now I see. The words on that page meant something. They weren't just words. It was just amazing to me. So um, we, attending church became something we looked forward to, and even Caitlin, who's 32 now, our daughter, she was seven years old at the time, she'll tell you she remembers what a change that was for our family um, that time, but the, all the changes. They weren't all positive. We lost some friends, um, but we were on the right track finally in our lives, and I finally knew that even though I'm completely unworthy, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with God. Amen. Now, there's one other thing I have to share with you that's part of our story. As I continued to jog that morning, I clearly heard the words in my head, God has, he has another child for our family, and you need to go and find that child. Now, I knew that Bill thought our family of four was complete and that there were so many emotions to process that day. I didn't share it with Bill. But about a year later, I did share with Bill what I felt like God had told me. And um, he said he did not get that message. And that we should, we should share the desire for such an important lifelong commitment. So as the years passed, I'd see something in the newspaper about adoptive families were needed or something else about adoption, I would hear about it. And Bill would always say, go look into it. But if it started to go to the next step, he would want to pull out, and, and it just it wouldn't be right. 
So finally, after eight years, I just told Bill, I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't talk about it anymore. And I knew what God had told me, but I must have misunderstood in some way. And I knew when I got to heaven, I remember that conversation, God, when I get to heaven, you're going to explain to me what you meant when you said that. So I let all the hurt and struggle go. I just let it go and, and moved on. So a year goes by. And Bill tells me, tomorrow I want to take you to lunch. So I said, okay. So we go to lunch, and he told me that he had wrestled with adoption over the last year and that God would not let him put it down. We were supposed to adopt, and Bill wanted to pursue it right now, and he wasn't going to stop. So my first thought was, now we're 42, we have two teenagers, we're going to adopt a baby? But then my next thought was, this is what God told you. So we did. Um, and so that, that was August that Bill told me. By November, we had a five-week-old baby that we were adopting. So in March 2006, we flew to Guatemala to meet our six-month-old son and complete the adoption paperwork to bring him home. That day, those days that we were in Guatemala, is nine years to the day that God told me he had another child for our family. So God knew that Sean was going to be our son eight years before he was conceived. So now we have an opportunity to go to Guatemala again and help a struggling family living in poverty. And if we raise the needed money for the house, Bill, Sean, and I will be in Guatemala just a few weeks shy of the first time we held him 18 years ago. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. The grace that you give us that leads to peace with you. Thank you, God, for being a God that pursues us, that draws us, that reaches down into our sinfulness and rescues us and saves us. And each of us in this room, our stories may be different, but at the end of the day, they're very similar. We were lost in the need of a Savior. Jesus, you are that Savior. But not only do you save us, you bring us into the family, as we're going to see this morning. We are sons and daughters. You are our father. And God, our story is just beyond how you saved us, but then it's how do we live this transformed life to make a difference in the hearts and lives of other people? And God, adoption is certainly a part of that. So thank you, God, for how you know things so much further in advance that we do. Thank you for the picture that adoption provides us, Lord, to understanding the gospel more fully. Thank you for how you change lives and hearts. Be with the choir now as they sing. May we just continue to worship you and thank you for how you have changed Bill and Debbie and through them, Lord, how many other people have, in, have been impacted as a result of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus. 
Amen. All right, at this time, our kiddos are going to make their way to Children's Church, both our younger group and our older group. And I pray that you have been blessed so far this morning. I know God has been glorified. And I pray through the singing and the sharing of testimony and then the choir that uh, you have been blessed. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. We looked at verse 1 last week. We're going to look at verse 2 in the first part of verse 3 this morning, and then we'll look at several verses next week. First Peter chapter 1. As I mentioned last week, what our standard is now that we're back into the New Testament and not as looking at as many verses as we were in Esther, is that we stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. So if you would please stand as we look at these verses, the very Word of God. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. In today's culture, we talk a lot about identity, right? Who are you? Who am I? And one definition I came across this week reads, personal identity refers to the unique ways that you define yourself. And so, so many people are trying to figure out who they are and they have all of these ways of trying to do that. How do you define yourself? What is it that ultimately shapes and defines you and determines who you are? Well, we saw last week that Peter is writing to exiles living in a hostile world, facing suffering, pain, and persecution. So in the midst of that, Peter wants them to know who they are. And he doesn't want them to forget who they are. And ultimately, and this is so important, who we are is defined by who God is. Who we are is defined by who God is. The truth about who God is and what he's done for us is ultimately what shapes and defines who we are. So this morning, I want you to notice two things about God and how those two things about God shape who the recipients of this letter were and who we are. So number one, I want you to notice the work of the triune God in salvation. As we read through this, hopefully you noticed the triune God here, the Godhead. One God, three persons. It says God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. So one God and three persons. Peter wants us to see the work that God has done in salvation and how that defines who we are. So notice three things. Notice, number one, Peter says we are chosen by God. We are chosen by God. Um, Peter wastes no time wading in to deep theological truths. He wastes no time. He says to these recipients, you are elect or chosen, eclectos. And then he modifies that by saying, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You are chosen, Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Father. The word foreknowledge means to know before. The Greek word is prognosis. Pro, before, gnosis, knowledge. It means to know before. But not just in 
like he knows, like he has knowledge, but it's more than that. When you study the scriptures, when you understand this word foreknowledge, it means more than just knowing before. It has the idea of planning or predetermining. So let me show you some examples in Scripture. Again, he wastes no time getting into deep theological truths. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. These will be on the screen. This Jesus, this is Peter's first sermon, right? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and then the foreknowledge of God. Consider Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Consider Romans chapter 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. Consider Deuteronomy 7, 6. We talked about this last week. What Peter's doing here is he does it throughout this letter is he's going back to the Old Testament. And what do we know about the people of God in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people's who are on the face of the earth. And then he goes on to say, hey, and I chose you not because of this, this, or this, but because I chose to love you. Consider John 15, 16. This is why Peter writes it, because Peter understood, because Jesus said it to him. You did not choose me. Now imagine Peter and the disciples could have said, well, hold on, Jesus, we did choose you. We chose to follow you. But what does he say? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Let me show you one more verse. This in 1 Peter chapter 1. I think this helps us to understand the idea behind this word. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter's talking about Jesus coming, ransoming us from our sins. And then in verse 20, he writes this. He, that's Jesus, was foreknown. So Jesus Christ comes, and Peter says, and Jesus was foreknown. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean God knew that Jesus was going to be crucified, and therefore God the Father sent Jesus? No. God the Father, before the foundation of the world, had already determined to save a people from their sins. He had determined to do that. So I think Peter's clear. God chose you. The emphasis here is upon God's sovereignty. He chooses. Now I know some of you at this moment, you're squirming a little bit. You're a little uncomfortable. This idea of God's choice, of God's choosing, you're like, wait a minute, what about man's responsibility? Like, You have all sorts of questions. What are the implications of that? So listen, I was where you were. When somebody would talk about God's choosing predestination election, I would want to push back against that until I came to understand what the New Testament teaches. And so I want to illustrate this for you. You may find this helpful. You may not. But this is this is how God has kind of helped me come to the point where I'm just going to trust what his word says. Most of you in this room know that my wife and I have two children. We have Landon, just turned 17. He's our biological son. How much say-so did Landon have in his birth? 
None. God didn't consult Landon. We didn't consult Landon. God didn't say, Landon, you want to be tall or short? You want to be blonde hair, blue eyes? You want to be born into a family that roots for Kentucky and will never win an important football game in your life? Like, God didn't consult Landon in any of that. He didn't, Landon didn't have a say so. Now consider my other son, Malachi. Malachi will be eight on Wednesday, and I had no idea you guys were going to share adoption in your story. I'm not surprised because it's part of your story. But consider Malachi. How much say-so did Malachi have in his adoption? Zero. Malachi was one month old when we learned of him. Four, about three and a half months old when he came into our family. Six months after that, we adopted him. He had no say-so in our choosing to adopt him. And our choosing him did not have to do with, will you be healthy? We didn't know. Our choosing him did not have anything to do with, what will you make of your life? Had nothing to do with that. Our choosing him had nothing to do with, will you be smart? Will you be athletic? We knew none of that. We chose, by God's leading, to adopt him. Now, Malachi, as many adopted children will do, is going to have to process a lot of things. And Ryan and I have already seen in his soon-to-be eight-year-old heart, him having to process things. Every adopted child wrestles with this. Why did my birth mom choose to give me up? Why didn't she want me? Why did you choose to adopt me? What was it that you saw in me that led you to adopt me? Did my birth mom really love me? Did she really care about me? Do I really belong here? I don't look like you. I'm not your biological child. Am I inferior to my brother Landon, who is your blood, who you gave birth to? Malachi just found out this past week, he didn't know or he forgot, that he was born in an ambulance. He wasn't even born in a hospital. We weren't there. We have no idea what to tell him. And so every adopted child begins to wrestle with these things. And here's what I want him to know. I want him to know, Malachi, I understand. I get it. You have lots of questions. You are trying to process through so much information. You have concerns, and you will wrestle with these things. Why me? Why did she not want me? Why did you choose me? And at the end of the day, here's what I want Malachi to know. We chose you. We loved you. We brought you into our family. You are a Hornsby. We don't love you any less or more than your brother. We, of our own choosing, brought you into our family. Rest in our choosing you. I think we can say the same thing when it comes to God's sovereignty and our salvation. Brothers and sisters, I can't explain it all. My mind can't grasp it all. I know the implications and the things that we got to think through and wrestle with, and you can come talk to me about that. And here's what I'm going to say to you. I don't get it all, but I declare it because it's in God's word. I rest in God's choosing me, and I agree with what Spurgeon said. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. 
Peter says God is claiming supreme authority over it all. He's sovereign over it all. He chose you according to the foreknowledge of the Father. But then he continues. He doesn't stop there. God chose you in the sanctification of the Spirit. God the Spirit does the sanctifying. The Bible clearly speaks of progressive sanctification. This this process of ongoing growth, right? Whereby the Spirit of God is continually making us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. More like the Father, Son, Jesus Christ. More and more holy. Yes and amen. The Bible's clear. But I think in this context, he's speaking about conversion. He's speaking about the foundation. You were chosen by God, and now, through the Holy Spirit, you are sanctified. So yes, you become more and more holy, but right now, through the work of the Spirit, you already are holy. I've already set you apart. You're holy now. That's who you are. So not only are you chosen by God, but you are set apart by God, for God to be holy. You are holy. We will all wrestle with sin and we seek to fight against sin. But in your core, you're holy. God has declared you holy. Live out who you are. Be holy. And the sanctification of the Spirit. Then he continues, and this is a mouthful right here. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You have been chosen by God. You have been set apart by the Spirit. You have been purchased by the Son. Jesus Christ is Lord. Peter will tell us that in verse 3. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And thus, our lives are to be lived in obedience unto him. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. But again, in this context, I don't think he's referring to future ongoing obedience. Yes and amen, you are to live in obedience to Jesus. I think he here is speaking of conversion. He's speaking of obedience in conversion. Remember when we did the whole series on justification and sanctification, we talked about conversion. So when the gospel is presented to you, you have to respond to the gospel. That's why we say there's God's sovereignty and the responsibility of man. You have to respond. How do you respond to the presentation of the gospel? Mark 1.15, Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Salvation is by repentance of sin and believing in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. How do you respond to this good news? Whether it's a pastor that preaches it, or Gideon's Bible, or a neighbor, or a spouse, how do you respond to the good news? It is through obedience. It is through repentance and faith. Repentance of sins. Hear me, repentance of sin isn't optional in salvation. There is no third way. Where yes, Jesus, we want you to be Savior, but I want to continue to live in unrepentant sin. That is not an option. When you come to Jesus, when Jesus speaks and works in your heart, the Holy Spirit is doing that work of regeneration. You are to respond with repentance. And if there is not repentance, there is not salvation. It's a turning from sin, but then you must turn to who? Jesus Christ. 
Not the Jesus you want to follow, but the Jesus as the Bible clearly describes for us, the Son of God. Faith in Jesus isn't optional. You must put your hope and your trust in Jesus. So he says, in for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This speaks to Christ's atoning work. This speaks to the shedding of his blood for cleansing and for forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed by a blood sacrifice. And once again, Peter is drawing from the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, go to Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, God confirms his covenant with his people Israel. Remember the people that God, Deuteronomy, has chosen? He says, I'll be your God, you will be my people. Israel, the people of God. By the way, pray for Israel. And we were living in difficult times, and Israel, the people there are experiencing that right now through an act of terrorism. But God makes this covenant with Israel. And I want you to notice two things about the covenant. Notice, number one, obedience. Obedience. If you look at verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will what? Do. God, you've made this covenant with us. We will do them. We'll we'll live out your laws. Drop down to verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. God had given the law. And they said, yes, we'll be obedient to that. And then notice, secondly, the sprinkling of the blood. Look at verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God makes a covenant with his people. I will be your God. You will be my people. I've set my affection upon you. Here is the blood that will cleanse you, that will cover you. In response, you be obedient. And what Peter is saying now is that God, through Jesus Christ, has made a new covenant with his people. This is what he says to them in the Lord's Supper. It's a new covenant in my blood, whereby Peter can say to these elect exiles, you are now the people of God. The church is the gathering of the people of God. And how does the church respond? Well, Peter says, It's through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that atonement. It's no longer the blood of animals. It's the blood of Jesus by which you can be saved. And how do we respond to this? By obedience, by repentance and faith in Jesus. We have been forgiven. We have been rescued. We are now the people of God. He is our God through Jesus Christ. But notice the second thing. Verse 3, notice the fatherhood of God. Again, notice the work of the triune God in salvation. God has done the work, therefore we can say we're chosen, we're set apart, we're holy, and we have been purchased, we have been forgiven. Then he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Peter's response to the work of the triune God in salvation? It's to praise him. It's to magnify his name for saving a people like us. 
Now, I want to camp out here for just a moment because I want you to understand a very important truth that I think sometimes is mistaught and misunderstood. And that is the universal fatherhood of God. The Bible, the scriptures do not teach the universal fatherhood of God. In other words, the Bible does not teach that God is the father of everyone. God is not the father of everyone. Five true statements from Scripture that help us to see this. Number one, all are made in the image of God. Yes and amen. Every person who has ever lived or who ever will live or who is presently living has been made, according to Genesis 1 and 2, in the image of God, which means every single person has worth and value and needs to be treated with dignity. Yes and amen. All are made in the image of God. But Scripture also teaches us, number two, in Ephesians 2, that all by nature are children of wrath. Because of your sin and mine, because we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we by nature are children of wrath. Yes, made in the image of God, but through your own choosing, you now by your very nature, your sin nature, are under the wrath and condemnation of a holy, just God. Number three, Christ is the Son of God by nature. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is declared to be the Son of God. That is his very nature. He wasn't born like you and I are born and suddenly God says, oh, you never existed. Boom, now you'll be the Son of God. By his very nature, he is the Son of God. Number four, in Christ we can be known by God and known personally as his child. God is the father only of Jesus Christ. right? His one and only, his only begotten son. He is the father only of Jesus Christ, then of us when we are adopted into his family. When you, by faith in Jesus Christ, Trust in him. You go from not only being blind and dead, but you go from being an orphan to being a child of God Most High. You become a son and a daughter. And that's number five. In Christ, you are a child of God. God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. And as a result of that, you are his child. Know who you are, brothers and sisters. You have an elder brother named Jesus. And Jesus, by nature, is the Son of God. And when you are in Christ, your elder brother, you become a son and a daughter of the King. And I don't know about you, but I find that extremely comforting as we live in a hostile world of suffering, of pain, and persecution to know that God will not abandon his children. God will never abandon his child at the doorstep of somebody he doesn't know. God will never abandon you. So who are you? Well, according to Peter, we are chosen by God. We are set apart by the Spirit. We are purchased by the Son. And we are children of God, the Father. This is all good news. And it's why Peter can write in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Notice, it's never peace and grace. It's grace and peace. 
The only way we can have peace with God the Father is through the grace of Jesus Christ the Son, through his death, burial, and resurrection. But I want you to hear me. Peter not only believes this, he's experienced it. So the reality is, this morning I've told you, Peter has laid out for us who we are in Christ. I pray and I hope every Sunday that we walk in here, we walk in confidently and knowing that that's who we are. But we're still in the flesh. And many times when we walk into a place like this after a long week, we don't walk in being reminded, man, God, you love me. You set your affections upon me. You've set me apart. This Jesus Christ died for me. I'm a child of God. We walk in heavy-hearted. We walk in beat up from the world. We walk in out of another week of failure after failure. We walk in week after week of, man, I rejected Jesus. I didn't stand for Jesus. I wasn't obedient to Jesus. We walk in week after week after Satan attacks us and the world attacks us. And maybe we feel like other people are attacking us. Sometimes we walk in here and we say, God, you've abandoned me. Or we walk in here thinking, God, your grace can't be sufficient for me. You can't, God, another week show me grace and forgiveness. But as we close, I want you to understand that Peter not only believes this, Peter experienced this. Jesus warned Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He warned Peter. Peter was just like us in our pride and our arrogance. No, Jesus, I would never do that. I want you to listen to Luke 22 as these words have just been on my heart this week. Luke 22, 60 through 62. But Peter said, this is the third time Peter denies Jesus. Man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Listen to this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine what that look would have been like? I mean, this is the one you had been following. This is the one you had pledged to give your life to. This is the one that was going to change everything, and you were all in. And now you've denied him, and Peter gets this look from Jesus, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. These are soul-crushing words. Could you imagine what Peter must have felt that night? The shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, the despair, the loneliness. And then, and then Jesus dies. I mean, the one who was going to change everything, the one who I left my livelihood to follow, the one that I was going to give everything to, not only did I just deny him, he is now dead. You want to know what hopeless feels like? That's hopelessness. To have this overwhelming guilt and shame that you just denied him and now he's dead. That is hopelessness. Until the resurrected Jesus Christ appears to Peter and restores him. This is not the writings of a man who always got it right. This is the writings of a man who had been lower than any of us maybe have ever been. And yet Jesus 
appears to Peter and restores him. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. When you read these words, understanding Peter, they are amazing. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Peter knows what that's like to be restored by Jesus. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter learned this the hard way. And so when he is so focused in the opening verses of letting them and you and I 2,000 plus years later to remind us of who we are, there's a reason why. Because it's very easy to forget that. So maybe you walked in this morning just beat up and tired and discouraged and frustrated. And what you need is the grace of Jesus Christ and the peace of Jesus Christ, which he offers to you once again this morning. Or maybe you walked in here and you're beginning to realize for the first time in your life what Bill and Debbie had to realize, and that is, yes, you may think you know God, yes, you may think you're a good person, but the reality is you are lost and in need of a Savior. And until you come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ, nothing is really ever going to change. And maybe you think, yeah, but God could never forgive me a sinner. And Peter would say, oh yes, he can. Because Peter experienced the grace and the peace of Christ. And he says, brothers and sisters, know who you are in a world that is hostile to us, in a world of suffering and pain, and you are his sons and daughters. Rest in that. Rest in his amazing grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, an amazing grace that we are getting ready to sing about. God, we need your grace, not just this morning. We needed it yesterday. We needed it in five minutes. We need it tomorrow. We're going to need it this week and the next week and a month from now. God, we never advance beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we were lost sinners in need of a Savior. And in this world in which we live, there are so many lies coming ultimately from Satan, but coming from so many people in this world trying to tell us who we really are that is not consistent with the truthfulness of your word. So Lord, help us to listen to the right voice. And that is the voice of the triune God. That is the voice of God who is our Father through Jesus Christ. The God who restores and confirms, and strengthens. And so right now, as we sing about this amazing grace, Lord, if we need you to restore and to strengthen us, then maybe just turn to you and cry out to you. And you will, God, do for us just as you did for Peter. There is a living hope that we'll see next week. And it is all through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we turn to you and we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? Let's worship together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind.
Amen, amen. You may be seated for just a couple minutes. If you guys will come up here and join me, let me introduce you to a sweet couple that's been attending Northside for a while. They moved here. They got, there they come. Look at that. I don't know how they knew, but there come the, the three precious boys. So this is Robbie and Zadie Rook. And their three sons, and I wrote their names down because you know how much I misspeak anymore. Uh, Jack, Jeremiah, and Jonah. And so here they are up here, so three precious boys. And so as I said, they moved here recently, and they come this morning because they desire to join uh, with Northside and, and what God is doing through us and, and, and through them as well. And so they come by letter. Uh, both are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. Robbie has followed Jesus in believer's baptism, but Zadie never has. And so she is going to follow the Lord in baptism. And so would you rejoice in that decision that she's making? I know it's a little overwhelming up here, isn't it? He's like, whoa. So, uh, so they're coming. Uh, Zadie helped us with Bible school several months ago and uh, just got to meet with them a couple weeks ago in the conference room. And they just shared their story and their testimony. And so once again, if you rejoice in their decision, will you let them know to come partner with us at Northside? All right, y'all want to sit right here on the front row for me? So before you leave today, if you'll just come by and uh, just love on them, and if you never introduced yourself to them, um, introduce yourself to them, uh, be praying for them, right? I try to remind you of this as often as possible. When the, when the Lord brings somebody and they believe that the Lord is leading them here to partner with us, right, we are to love on them. They're part of our family. We encourage them, and, and they know, hey, they're going to serve us as well. And so we wanna, we're a family. We do life together, right? And we need to do life together because this is a hostile world in which we're living. And so this is the Rook family. So pray for them and come encourage them before you leave. All right, Steve is the deacon of the week. So he's going to come. Um, just take a look at the bulletin for me. We don't have any evening services tonight. So you got all afternoon to read and study that bulletin. Uh, there's a fundraising opportunity out there on the wall. There's... Uh, all sorts of fall festival stuff. Just please look at the bulletin, do what it says, and uh, we'll be good. All right. I'll turn it over to you, brother. All right. Thank you. Um, remember, there, this is the month uh, of October is pastor appreciation and also the staff. So what we want to do is to uh, say thank you to our leadership and the workers by giving a love offering after we're finished and we're going to do that uh, for the rest of this month. So uh, if you don't have anything today, just remember next Sunday. But uh, I think it's important that we uh, share our love. And also send them a card or a call, a phone call or some way to reach out to them. Um, and uh, I want to thank you so much, Bill and Debbie, sharing your testimony. <laughs> Very courageous. Anytime you have the opportunity, I think you should share your testimony to people because it affects people. It changes lives. And I think it's very important. I want to thank you guys for that. And um, uh, thanks for this new couple coming and their family, Robbie and Zadie and Jonah, Jack, and Jeremiah. Yeah, okay. So uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for the message that Pastor Aaron gave today. And, 
and uh, how powerful it was and that we would apply that message to our own lives and we would walk, Lord, in the uh, strength of uh, our life uh, is with you and uh, be a witness to others. I pray for courage for all of us as we go into the world uh, this week and share and encounter with other people because there are going to be people that are lost that we're going to encounter and I just pray that we would all have ears sensitive to uh, uh, speaking forth your word and uh, pray for safety and um, uh, and that you would just continue to bless Northside and uh, the leadership, our pastors, Lord, Pastor Aaron and Pastor Gary. For I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.